As we get into God's Word this morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions to kind of get our minds going, to kind of give them a little bit of exercise, to unlock them, to unlock that uh, potential today. And the first question is this, Uh, what would you do if someone were to ask you to help develop a skill? How would you help them? Let's say for an example, you're an expert woodworker. And someone comes and says, gosh, I would love to learn how to uh, do what you do. I want to know what you know. I want to uh, be able to produce what you produce. How would you instruct them? Or maybe they say, gosh, you make the best desserts. I want to make desserts like that. I want to make meals like that. Uh, help me develop that same skill that you have. Or, or maybe it's you, you ride for distances and distances that I would love to ride. Uh, maybe it's, uh, gosh, I would love to play an instrument like you do. Or I want to keep my home decorated like the way you have it decorated. It's always so clean and thematic for whatever it is that you're celebrating. I'd love to have that, to have that feeling that every time people come over to my home, there's just... They feel more at home than at their own home. I want that. Can you teach me how to do that? Maybe it's, gosh, you know, you are, are so good at finances. Would you teach me how to do finances the way you do? It's clear because you are so generous and yet you always seem to have uh, what you need and you give away so much. I want to have that in my life. Imagine someone were to come to you and ask you, what is the best way that I can develop that skill, what would you do? Type your answer in chat if you're uh, online with us or or here today. What would you do? Shout out your answer. How would you help someone develop a skill? What would you do? YouTube. You'd send them. Listen, I got it all from YouTube. That's where I learned it. So go ahead and go to YouTube and watch these videos, right? You'd maybe suggest some videos. Great answer. What would you do? How would you help someone develop a skill? Have them work on a project with you. So you would start a project together. They would, you would maybe show them some things. They would try some things, right? That's a great idea. Excellent idea. What else would you do? Repetition, so you get them to do things over and over and over again, right? What's that? Write out instructions, step-by-step processes of this is what I do when I start a project, when I start to clean my house, or when I start to bake, or what, you know, all of the things are written down. All of those are excellent answers. Now, I have one more question for you. Hopefully you answered uh, some questions in chat. Uh, answered that question in chat, because we'd love to know how you'd Uh, be helping people develop a skill. Here's my second question for you. How would you know they have successfully developed that skill? When they do it on their own. Interesting. When they do it successfully on their own. Thank you for that clarification. I was was wondering uh, if that was the case because there's sometimes I've done things on my own and and Krista said that's not been successful. (laughs) You you tried, but that was a fail. Uh, Yes, they have to do it successfully on their own. Now here's your bonus question. What if someone were to come to you and say, help me develop my faith? 
what would you do? What would you do? In those questions, we discover what real learning is all about. That real learning is not just about gaining knowledge in your head, but that ultimately you have to put it into practice and that you have to successfully do it on your own. So when it comes to things like baking, a person would have to go and bake a cake just as well as you would, or maybe even better than what you could do. If you were teaching them how to ride for long distances on a pedal bike, then you would do the exact same thing. You would expect them to report back, I went through this 80,000 mile ride on my own. And this is how it went. It was good. And the same thing's true with faith. But oftentimes in the church, we make faith about what you know. And the Bible is very clear that that's actually only part of the equation. If, we were to, if someone were to say, help me grow my faith, we might teach them, we might write out some instructions. Sometimes the church just stops there. If you want to have this in your life, just come to this class. If you'd like to know more of this, then attend Sunday mornings. And of course, there's always knowledge. There's always things that we're teaching, not just in the message, but in the songs that we were singing. Right? We just sang, no power of hell, no fear of man will ever pluck me from his hand. And sometimes we know that truth in our heads and it doesn't penetrate down to our daily lives. One of the goals of our service is not so that you simply know more things but that you apply the one thing that God wants you to apply from that Sunday. In other words, if you were to help someone to develop their faith, you would do what you do in every other arena of life if they asked you to develop a skill, because faith is a skill. It's not just an intellectual agreement. Having someone develop their faith, helping someone develop their faith is not just about knowing things. It's about applying those things in their lives. I don't think faith is a class. I think life is the exam that shows whether you have faith or not. Knowledge is only part of the development. A skill is not developed until it is applied. Faith is not developed until it is applied. So, last week, we talked about how we can experience the power of God in our daily lives. That the key to experiencing the power of God in our daily lives is faith. You remember that if you were with us last week, uh, that Jesus went to his hometown, and he was amazed by their lack of faith, and he couldn't do a lot of miracles there few healings, but nothing major like he had done in every other place where he was teaching in ministry. Because they would not apply what they knew about God in their daily lives. And here's two things I want you to know about faith. Because you might wonder and you might question whether you can Put your faith in God like Jesus is asking you to. 
You might wonder if it's worthwhile. You may be in some situations where you're not sure if it's worth it. And there's two presuppositions I want you to know before we get into talking about how God helps grow our faith. The first is this, is this. No one in life starts with strong faith. No one in life starts off with strong faith. No one does. Everyone starts off in a place where they need to grow from where they have started from. No one starts out with strong faith. In other words, everyone has questions in their lives. Everyone has doubts in their lives. That includes both Christians who have been Christians for a long time and people who are just investigating the claims of Jesus for the first time or yet another time but have never crossed that line of belief yet. No one starts out with strong faith. That's, that's the first thing I want you to understand, a, a presupposition, a pretext as we get into the text. And the second thing is really quite amazing. God himself is interested in helping grow your faith. God himself is interested in helping grow your faith in him, which is amazing to me. Uh, maybe you've heard of the website Masterclass. Have you heard of that? Have you seen some commercials on TV or perhaps uh, on social media? It's where you can sign up for a, a, a one, uh, one yearly fee and you can access all sorts of things that you may want to learn from the experts themselves. You can learn from those who have basically written the books on the topics that you want to learn from. God himself wants to give us a master class on faith. He wants to help us grow our faith, and he is interested in doing it. But the way that he grows our faith is definitely going to challenge us. I want to show you how he grows our faith. And if you've got a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start at the second part of verse 6, and we are going to fly through almost 50 verses of God's word this morning. Starts with this. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So he's left his hometown. He started to teach from village to village. And calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over evil, impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That's odd, isn't it? Jesus hasn't given his disciples a lot of instruction, just telling them what the kingdom of God is like and that they just need to be witnesses and God will take care of the growth. But they've not seen any of the things that we've described. They've not seen YouTube videos. They've not seen the list. They've not seen the recipes. They've, not, they've only seen his example and now he's just sending them out and he's actually restricting what they can take with him. Imagine we were to say, hey, listen, we're going to send all of our kids away on an overnight camp. But here's what you can't take. Don't take a sleeping bag. Don't take extra clothes. 
and don't take any money. Kids would be like, yeah, it's fine. But the parents would be like, uh, that is woefully under, uh, underprepared. No one would ever go into a classroom at the beginning of a school year and say, uh, you know, you didn't need to have anything. As a matter of fact, we forbid you from having books or paper or pens and pencils and book bags. There would be no professor in university that would say, we're not giving you a syllabus. As a matter of fact, we don't want you to show up with any resources to get started on your job well. This seems like such an odd request. Don't bring what you think is essential. That's how God sends out, that's how Jesus sends out his disciples. Would you let your son or daughter go on a missions trip like that, a field trip like that, to start school like that, or start a class like that? The answer is no. You'd be wondering, wait, what do they need? How do I set them up for success? Here's the first side note. This is free. It's not really related to the message. It's just kind of an observation. This is ministry. Ministry is not just something that those who go through seminary get to do. This is something that every disciple does. This is God's fast track to faith regardless of title, regardless of how long you have been a follower of Jesus. Here's the side note. The ministry that you are given by God, the task that you are given by God will always seem like it's lacking something, like it's unclear. You will always have questions. God, when he gives us ministries, does not answer all of our questions. There are only a couple of times in Scripture, actually, that I can think of when he did. The time when he gave instructions for the tabernacle and the temple. He gave specific instructions as to how those were to be built. And that was it. He left the rest to them. But every other time, when God gives an invitation to go, when he gives an invitation to serve, he doesn't give a list of, and here's what to expect, and here's how it will go. And isn't that frustrating? I mean, you might have that experience if you grew up in church and you've ever served in a ministry in church where some pastor or a ministry leader will come along and say, hey, would you like to serve in tech kids? Would you like to be part of our youth group? Would you like to be on the missions team? Sure, what does it involve? Well, we can give you kind of a basic picture and that's it. The rest of it is going to be a lot of questions and they're not going to answer it for you. That's not quite what God is doing because a church would love to give you all of the answers. God does it intentionally. That's part of his fast track to faith. So that's a little bit of a side thing. That the task you are given by God will always seem like it's lacking information somehow or lacking resources. And it's intentional. And surprisingly, with the directions on what not to bring... As a matter of fact, it almost seems like it would be limiting success. It actually has great success. We read that in verse 12, they went out and they preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. They do it. 
They do what Jesus has asked. Go, don't take staff, don't take extra clothes, don't take money. Rely on people's hospitality to the point where you feel like you're imposing. And then when they don't offer you hospitality, don't fight back. Just shake the dust off your feet and move on and find someone who will offer you hospitality. And it's wildly successful. How wildly successful? Well, let's put it to you this way. How often in your experience do you see people being freed of many demons and many people being healed in a miraculous way? Not much, right? Not much. And yet here they go out and they have wild success. Look at what they've done. This would be great on a list of accomplishments. This would be great on any resume. Why should we have you part of our ministry team? Well, here's a couple of reasons. And slide that across the table. And then, oh, absolutely we want to have you on our ministry team. I mean, when I put together my resume to look for church jobs, to to serve as a pastor in a church, I listed some of those experiences, and some of them were big. One time there was, um, I mean, one of the things on my resume was early on in ministry, uh, our kids program grew from three kids in September to 80 kids by June. It was packed. We didn't know what we were doing. We were... We had kids who were choosing kids hour over hockey in Canada. Right. Exactly. And they were telling their parents, get up. You have to take us to this church. And the parents would say, fine, we have to go to this church. And then they'd come to the church and they'd find, hey, this church is actually pretty good. We really enjoy it because we had excellent staff in our big services as well. And they were telling their friends, you've got to come. You've got to come. This is an amazing program. This, this is so, it's like camp on the weekend. Come, you've got to be a part of this. Another thing that would be on my resume is that we renovated a church lobby. That doesn't sound very exciting. But we took an old 70s designed lobby that had a lot of low-hanging dark oak wood and dark colors and all the lights were blocked and we pushed it wide open. We doubled the space. We made it big and wide and bright, put in a fellowship area and now it's the most used place in the building. And because of the changes we made there, they started to make changes throughout the 70s year old, not 70 year old, but the building that was built in the 70s. They started to update it all over the place. And people started to engage and started to fellowship. And there was like, wow, who knew that this kind of a change could be made there? It cost a lot of money, but wow, what an amazing difference. My hunch is if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any short period of time, you may have a story like that. Something where you've seen real life change and you got to be a part of that. Or maybe you were the one instrumental in making that happen. Here's side note number two, totally free, not related to the message. I'm glad you have those stories. Those are the stories that keep you going, right? Those stories when you get to be a part of a significant difference in the lives of others. You get to be a part of the change. You get to see it happen. You get to see it realized. That's awesome. I want that for you. They're inspirational not only to you, but inspirational to others as you tell those stories of what you can do for God. Like it's just amazing what one person can do. Wow. However, there's things that other people can do. 
they're not always good. In verse 14, we read that King Herod, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. And some were saying, oh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of those prophets of long ago. But when Herod, King Herod, heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had been bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This story doesn't get told in Sunday school. Because this story's R-rated. This is right from the annals of kings, queens, political figures, politics. And is a story of how people in power can do anything they want to the people who have no power. Because of some man's drunken party where he stares with all of his friends lustfully at his stepdaughter. A man's life comes to an end. And that man's life was one of the most powerful men, powerful people in the kingdom of God at that time. 
It's a story of a queen who decided that she wasn't married to enough power. So she divorced her husband and married his brother. And killed a man who called her out for it. How dare you challenge me? Oh, this is... This is R-rated as R-rated gets. And it ends the life of one of the greatest servants in the kingdom of God at that time. There's power that the disciples have. And then they meet this. They hear this. This puts the squeeze on faith when this happens. When you make some small steps and advances for the kingdom of God and then outside forces come in and put the squeeze on you to show you who's really in charge, who really has power. How can you and I overcome people like this? We can't. Here's a Third side note has nothing to do with the message. I can't guarantee a lot of things will happen in your life. But I can guarantee this. This will happen if you decide to serve Jesus. People will decide to try to flex against the power that you have to do what God has called you to do. And I guarantee that there will be times in serving Jesus when you will feel helpless and powerless. And there is no greater discouragement when you feel helpless and powerless in a situation where the witness of Christ is trampled on. We saw this with QAnon. Where Christians who say they love the truth of Scripture, followed the lies of society. And what could I do? How could I help? It's not just authority from outside. But it's authorities from inside. The recent scandal of Ravi Zacharias, who lived a double life, who I have said from this pulpit was the greatest apologist in the Western world, was living a double life. My wife and I were just learning last night that his organization is essentially scrubbing his writings from their resources. When you decide to step up and serve, 
there will be a point where someone comes up to stand in front of you, to flex in front of you and say, no, this is stronger. What you're doing cannot compete. And if I wanted to, if we wanted to, we could crush you. There is no greater discouragement to feel helpless and powerless in a situation where the witness of Christ is trampled on. And that's simply just a reality that we need to know. Because we will struggle in times of ministry when we want to do something, when we want to help, and there's nothing we can do to help. But God is all-powerful, right? He could do something. What does He choose to do? In those situations, when someone comes up and decides to flex on him, what does he do? He gives more ministry assignments to his people. Um, We read that in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, and so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that you can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages, so that they can go and, uh, to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. If you've ever felt overwhelmed in your life, raise your hand. Here are the apostles who were told to go on a missions trip without supplies, without resources, and they saw just amazing things, were able to do amazing things. And then behind the scenes, John the Baptist is murdered They're emotionally exhausted, they're intellectually exhausted, they're physically exhausted, they're drained in every way, they try to get away from from all of the ministry, the ministry follows them, and Jesus says, hey guys, you know, you need to do it, you need to go feed these people. They recognized a need saying, Jesus, send these people away, we got nothing left, and Jesus says, no, you do something. What we see in Scripture is 2020 in a nutshell. That feeling you felt all last year and still feel as we start to stumble our way out of this pandemic like a baby learning to walk is exactly what the apostles and disciples felt when Jesus came to them and said, you do it. I felt it this year. 
as more and more ministry was necessary from less and less people. And there were times when I felt what the apostles felt this past year. There were times when you felt what the apostles felt just from this past year alone. Where you felt tired, worn out, mentally exhausted, feeling incapable. You're wondering, okay God, I'm doing all these things for you. It seems to be having traction. It's maybe one step forward, two steps back. Or two steps forward, one step back. I don't seem to be getting anywhere. And all around us is this evil that is happening to the entire world world and here comes Jesus like some Let's try that. Are we back? Hey, there we are. Sorry about that, folks. These disciples, they're worn out, tired. They're exhausted. They've been doing all of these things for Jesus. There's evil everywhere around in the world. And Jesus comes in like a middle manager on Friday afternoon at 3 a.m. and says, or 3 p.m. and says, hey, I'm going to need this by Sunday morning at 9 and leaves you with a stack of papers meant for a team of four or five people while he heads off fishing for the weekend. The disciples have had it because what God is asking them is too much. We read this. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go? And spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat. Oh. In other words, what the disciples are saying is God, we have given you everything, we have nothing left. They have come to the end of their rope. And Jesus doesn't do what middle managers do, though. Well, it may feel like Jesus is the middle manager. He's really not. He doesn't tell us to, you know, you just got to suck one up and take it for the team and, you know, put on your big girl pants or your big boy pants and let's get there, let's get it done. Rah, rah, team. He does something so comforting. He says to them in verse, uh, second half of verse 37, or sorry, verse 38. How many loaves do you have? He said. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five. And two fish. That's all they had. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. Thanks. And broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to all the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. 
They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Jesus doesn't tell them to pull up their bootstraps and get to work. He simply says, what have you got left? Bring it to me. And then he prays. All we know is that he lifts his head to heaven and gives thanks for what they have. And then they get to work distributing it. And it satisfies 5,000 men. And if you've ever seen men eat, they're not just eating one helping, right? They're having a couple, some three, some four. And that's not including the women and children that are at this event. And there's enough left over so that 12 basketfuls are left. Someone remind me, how many disciples did Jesus have? 12. Oh, one basket for each. Hmm, more than what they started with on their own. That is God's fast track to faith. We make it about our faith. This is the level of faith that we have to have. Not thinking this is the faith in what we're putting our faith in. This is the person that we're putting our faith in. We focus on the faith aspect, not the one behind the faith and the way that this shows up in their lives, the way that this showed up was that they thought they were doing the work. They weren't the source of the doing at all. And that is God's fast track to faith. In the middle of God overloading them intentionally, more and more and more and more so that they have nothing left to give. They come to the end of the rope and God asks for still more. It's impossible ministry situation after impossible ministry situation after impossible ministry situation. It's when they arrive there and they say, God, we've got nothing left. You have to do something. That's when God shows up. They were never the source. God was the source. And he reminds them of this truth again and again and again. We read in verse 45 that immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them 
and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. What is God's fast track of faith? How does God work to grow our faith? By pushing us to the edge of our natural strength and our natural abilities so that when we have nothing left except to cry out to God for strength, for empowerment, for movement, we realize He was all we ever, he ever, we ever needed in the first place. All we ever needed was what he was willing to provide. And yet what we often do is when we get a task, we rush forward with our own skills. We rush forward with our own mindset and say, here's what I can do. God, let me show you what I can do. Like a little kid trying to learn how to do a cartwheel. And God's on the porch going, that's great, honey, but it's not, no, that's, no, that's not what I, okay, that's nice. But where God just wants us to run to him with what, we need for what he's asked us what he's asked us to do you and i have a god that we can call on in impossible situations amen and you and i have a god that we must call on in manageable situations amen I noticed the amen wasn't as strong on the second one as it was on the first. And isn't that true? Isn't that natural? Oh, I can do that. I can do this. When I first put out that resume with some of those accomplishments that I told you about earlier, I asked a ministry friend, hey, would you look at my resume, make sure that it, you know, it shines the way I want it to, right? I want it to just look good, stand out somehow. And he got the email, and within five emails, or within five minutes, he emailed me back and said, there's a lot of I here. Not a lot of humility. A lot of what you have done, not a lot of what God has done. You may want to change that. I wouldn't hire you if I saw this email or this resume. It's never about us producing results. Faith is about bringing to God what he's asked us to do. And he is willing to help church, the best way to grow our faith is to serve. It's not a class. It's not attending a service. The best way, the fastest way, the fast track way is to serve. Because when you jump into an area of ministry where maybe, hey, you're not sure you have all of the answers and you're not sure you're making the best decision on where you can act, that's a good space to be. 
And God will start to load you up and load you up with more responsibilities and he'll use his people to load you up and he'll use who he wants to reach to load you up so that you get to the end of your rope really quickly where you think, God, I'm done. You cannot ask me for any more. And then he throws on a little bit more. Not because he's cruel, but because he's trying to teach you to have faith in him, not yourself. And there is a remarkable difference. It starts so subtly, even for Christians in ministry. The best way to grow your faith is to serve because God himself will show up as you do. When you serve God in faith, trusting in him, not yourself, Asking him versus relying on yourself. You gain him. You gain him. He enters into your boat. And you get to see that. You get to experience that. We get to see that it's not about us, our strength, our capability, but only because we trust in a big, unlimited, all-powerful God who is able to be called on in the impossible situations and must be called on in the manageable situations. If you want to see God's power at work in your life, go to where God's power is already at work in life. And God, guaranteed, will ask you for more than you can deliver on your own because he doesn't want you to trust you. He wants you to trust him. He wants to build your faith in him. And it's there when we get overloaded and overburdened, when we can cry out and understand, God, it's in the impossible, it's in the manageable, where we have the privilege of saying, God, it's up to you, because it's all we have. And it's there we see God step up when we step out of the way. When we serve God, we gain God. And that is the fast track to faith. Some questions for you to think about, maybe even apply. Talking about them in your growth groups this week, perhaps. You can talk about them with your family around the lunch table. Here they are. First, Share a story of when someone provided for you in a time of need. How did that make you feel about them, about that person? What changed in the relationship? Second question. How would you feel, how do you feel, when God asks you to do something that is beyond your capability to do? How do you feel about that? Does it get you excited? Does that put you into panic mode? How do you feel? And the third question. How can we encourage each other to have faith to serve Jesus in spite of incredible obstacles in our lives? When we serve God in faith, we gain God himself. Let's pray. 
Jesus, would you forgive us? Would you forgive me for the times when I've relied on my own strength for the tasks that you have given me, that you have given us? I pray, Lord, that you would. God, I pray that you would do whatever you need to do to bring us to the place where we're trusting in what you can do versus what we can do. We want your power to be at work, not only in our lives, but through our lives. And if we need to get out of the way and bring these things to you more than we work on those things, then I pray that you would help us to do that. Do whatever you need to do in our lives that brings us all, that brings this church to a place where we're not just coasting, but we're doing the big things that you've asked us to do and not out of our own strength, but out of faith and dependence on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.